Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. And I'm Steven Zuber. And today we are just chatting amongst ourselves, as we sometimes like to do. That's right. And since we have a hard time keeping on subject, we decided to pick two or three or four rationality-related topics or articles to discuss throughout the episode. Heck yeah. And I'm running with the theme of taking notes. So <laughs> do you have anywhere you want to start? Let's start with yours. Cool. Um, so my first pick was... Uh, an article by Matt Freeman, a.k.a. Morgina Mail, a.k.a. Matt Freeman of the We've Got Ward and Doof podcasts. We had him on, on our last episode. And this is actually a direct follow-up to the conversation we had last time. I think the next day or maybe that night, he went home and wrote a um, a dialogue on rational activism on Less Wrong, which we'll link to on the episode notes. And it's just a really like wonderful and short distillation of the argument that Matt made on our last episode about rationalists needing to overcome their fear of being the least bit culty if they actually want to get the sanity waterline to go up. And it's done in this fun dialogue form where you are visited by an alien and they hand you this tome of saying, hey, here's the the tools you need to join the galactic civilization. You get This will be on your way to figuring out the, you know, the faster than light travel, everything. You're going to achieve all of your goals better. You just need to, you know, get through this. And the person's reading this or skimming through this 3,000-page book and like, this looks kind of like like really dense textbook. You know, this would be a lot better, you know, if it was a sequence, a short post, and he links to the sequences. And the exchange is basically, you're mainly voicing the, the objections that Matt anticipated and talked about during our, during our episode, where it's like, well, you know, humans are really resistant to, to joining, like, movements. And the kind of people who would even be interested in this sort of thing are the kind of people who have high mimetic immune systems to kind of evangelizing and seeming passionate about stuff. Um, this and, this won't work. And, yeah, and yeah. the human race has heard forever, you know, just read this one thing and you will be saved or whatever. Right, yeah. So, oh, I haven't heard that a thousand times before. Right. And so, you know, I forget what the book was called at first, but, you know, he's like, how about like a catchier title? And the alien's like, oh, you mean like how to be less stupid? I was thinking more <laughs> like how to be less wrong, but even that still sounds kind of condescending or, or it was like how to be more rational or something. You're, the protagonist is arguing that Look, people are going to see that and be like, I'm already rational enough. Fuck you. Or rationality, that's for nerds. What are you talking about? We'd be much more inclined to read something like, you know, 12 proven steps to be happier, sexier, and wealthier. Number um, six will shock you. Right. <laughs> so there are a couple of cool quotes I wanted to pull out of it, and then we can talk more about some of the meat of it. So this was after the point where the protagonist had said, okay, I, you know, I believe you. I want to try and make this work out, but I still feel like this isn't really going to sell. And I'm even kind of resistant to it, even knowing that I just talked about how re- how that resistance is, that resistance is irrational and, and automatic. And the visitor says, "Can you not reflect on how your automatic and therefore probably not rational suspicion is ultimately self-defeating, and probably not even meritorious, since you literally don't know what the book says this organization would look like?" Oh yeah, that's right. The book to get this to go out, they talk about this and they realize that organizing would have to would have to happen. You can't just put this book on the shelves and get it out there. It has to be marketed by a group. All right. So to continue, your world is full to bursting with powerful hierarchical organizations with much flimsier justifications for existence than improving the quality of thinking and therefore the epistemic accuracy of instrumental effectiveness. Eh, I was so close. And instrumental effectiveness of the species. It's almost cowardly of you to insist that you can't possibly try to promote the one thing you care about in the world or you care most about in the world which you honestly believe could help save your world while all around you thrive countless powerful political blocks promoting intellectual snake oil so they go on to say uh and if you aren't capable of making that choice of committing to actually try and allowing your deep conflict over the endeavor to make you productively paranoid and engender the necessary level of constant vigilance then you get the bad ending 
which is to say you get more of the same. And it's fun. In that part of the post, he links to uh, the sentence, you get more of the same. Mm -hmm. He links to the wiki pages for like the Holocaust, wars, the Crusades, um, famine, or, you know, just like general bad shit. But it was great, just big high level stuff. It's like you get all the stuff that sucks that you've had this whole time. Rationality doesn't become something that the world cares about unless the people who do care about it care enough to actually convince the world that they should. And I really liked that quote. So, I don't know. Thoughts, feelings, responses? Uh, I agree. I still, I mean, I agree that rationality is a wonderful thing that would make the human race better if more people embraced it. I still don't know how to go about promoting it, though. I mean, I was raised in an evangelical religion, and they just don't work all that great. So, but have you actually thought about it after over, after saying, I'm going to set aside my trepidation about evangelizing and stuff? About how to yeah. evangelize it? I mean, the closest I can think to do is uh, doing like what the street epistemology people do. That's That sounds like actually a pretty nifty approach. And that's just engaging with people one-on-one in, yeah. a, in a nice way. Yeah. And I think... in, a, in a personable manner and and not having anything to sell necessarily. Just getting people to think about things and question their own assumptions. I like that too. I the problem with that, and I think Matt would agree, is like that's only going to work with the kind of people who care about what the word street epistemology means, right? Well, I mean, they don't. You don't even say the word street epistemology to them. That's true, but I think it's, it's always been my opinion that if you engender enough of a love of truth into people, then they will eventually make their way to the scientific method and possibly to rationality as well. Because everyone I knew that deconverted out of christianity most of almost all of them well everyone i knew anyway had just this desire to know what's actually true about the world and that was eventually where it led them and so i've always been of the opinion you don't have to evangelize atheism you just have to get people to love the truth enough that they want to know what's actually true i think that that helps and i'm i'm gonna keep playing devil's advocate just because i feel like that's not enough because not enough people have that as a priority right oh yeah that well so you're right. That's not, it's not going to appeal to everybody. And this, it, it, I think for this to work, it doesn't have to appeal to 100% of people, but it has to appeal to more than 5% of people. Right? I think if you're, but if you're trying to promote people a love of knowing the truth, then that has lots of other good knock-on effects as well. And I would rather have that and get the, the what, what is it called? The side effects of having more people. Yeah. And the externality of having more people get into rationality as well. Because I think that is something that you can promote and that even... Everyone else who looks at you, if they see you specifically promoting uh, rationality, they're like, well, you're just another memeplex trying to propagate yourself. But everyone can get behind trying to teach people a love and respect for the truth, right? I mean... Almost pretty much everyone. 50% of people, maybe? Eh. 30, 10? That sounds optimistic. in, In theory, I think most people would at least not give you shit for that. There's some people that are like, well, all truth is subjective, so really what you're trying to do is sell your own worldview. But most people you can get to go along with, the truth is good. Falsity and and misconception is bad. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, it, I think a lot of people don't care. Like, I don't think they, they might not ask themselves in a real way. Not that they never do, but they never commit to thinking this way about like what they think the truth is right. in in a meta sense. Right. So they just think about, I've got this beliefs that I don't even feel like are beliefs. I've got these facts in my head. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the really hard part. You got to make them like both love the truth and have some doubt and have some doubt that they already have the answers. Like I've been surprised, honestly, interacting more with the non-rational world lately. Just how many people have these crazy beliefs? I met another person just recently who was like, yeah, I got psychic powers, man. And I astral project when I sleep. 
I'm like, I, I don't even really need this body, but I do kind of like this body, so I'm sticking with it. I'm like, that's that's great. And this this person reads like science articles now and then, but always reinterprets them in the light of their psychic worldview. Right. And I'm like, this, how do you get by? like that that's so weird i don't know it apparently has very little effect on your actual living yeah right (laughs) because they don't astral project like dodge a car accident or something right yeah um so i don't know how to make because someone like that already thinks that they have a respect for the truth they just think they have it right i think they think i think they say they have one like because i mean my favorite i've known people who would say things like that and i'd be like oh have you heard of james randy's million dollar challenge right you know, if you can do this, dude, go get the million dollars. You'll be famous. You get a million fucking dollars. That's, um, it's actually a pretty good one, I, but I don't want to like. It sounds adversarial. Be yeah, it does. But, but I do it, and I try to do it in a friendly way. Yeah. Of like, you know, can I get a ten percent finder's fee? Okay. Like this is awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess asking for a demonstration might even seem adversarial. Mm-hmm. But then they say like, well, I I can't right now because I the music's too loud, or you know, it's like, no, come on, like let's. What conditions do you need to make this happen? The more you pin it down, the more they'll make excuses. You know, they've got their dragon in the garage like the Carl Sagan metaphor. Right. Um, they, they think they, they can do that. They think that they think they can do that. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, like at some point you got to make people want to have a firm foundation of their belief. I guess one of the nice parts about <laughs> God, I hate saying this. One of the nice parts about um, growing up evangelical is that you, if you are spreading this thing out, you have to defend your beliefs a lot to people. And so you want them to be as firm as possible. And that's one of the, the things that drove me, anyway, to make sure that I did have these things figured out and I could explain things and meet challengers when they were, like, saying, but evolution is true because of this. And I'd be like, nuh-uh, have you seen <laughs> this thing? <laughs> and that's that's one of the things that eventually led me to be like, huh, wait a minute. And you would have said back then that seeking the truth was a really important goal to you. Yeah, it was, I mean, so was it? It's... Yeah, well, eventually I kept seeking the truth until I got to it. <laughs> well, so I think you cared about the truth, but you didn't know how to find it. Yeah. And so when you found that there was an actual recipe to get things right, you were eager to find that and you were stoked, if I'm reading this correctly. Yeah. Right? So. Well, the thing is, I had heard about science before, you know? It's not like I didn't know that scientists exist, but... I guess as the average person, you don't really think of the scientific method all that much, and certainly not as something that's applicable to yourself in your day-to-day life. Or that you can do, you know, really without tools, for the most part, just with just with testing something. Yeah, just test um, your own beliefs. Yeah. I think some people have that spark if they want to know stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can, you can find those people, you can engage with them, street epistemology style, or you can... Um, and I think David mentioned this on the podcast I did with him, uh, months ago and i think this came up with matt too if there was a community of badasses mm-hmm. you know who were just crushing it at life mm-hmm. and what do they all have in common oh they all you know are part of the church of rationality or whatever it ends up being called yeah. um they're all rationalists um you know i remember this was impactful when i was first uh getting into the rationality community i forget what podcast this was on it was one of the few that eliezer has been on it might have been Pale Blue Dot. I think he's in one of the last episodes of that podcast. He was asked about um, why the, back then it was the Singularity Institute was doing what it was doing. You know, why why aren't you guys doing something else? Mm-hmm. And he said, there's got to be one project that is the most important thing humans can be working on right now that we need to get right. And we at the Singularity Institute, we're rationalists over here. We think we found it. That's why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. And that, And it sounds, you know preachy but when he said we're rationalists this is this is it i was like oh that's that's 
that's awesome. Yeah. You guys figured, you know. I love that about him. He yeah. never tries to, to weasel away or anything. He just leans right in. And he does it in a way that I didn't find off-putting at all. No. And so, yeah. if anything, I found it dangerously entrancing. <laughs> right? um, so I've, I've seen him on a number of, of those podcasts or talking head things where with almost everyone else, they would be given some sort of challenge. I'd be like, oh, God, here comes the backpedaling. And he'd just be like, no, I own it. You know, There's, I'm, I ain't ashamed. And I think that's also another big part of it. Like, as, <sighs> as Jehovah's Witnesses, we were often told to stand up and be proud and be like, I am a Jehovah's Witness and I am a witness unto the Lord with my actions, you know? And if people are always like, embarrassed and ashamed to say they're rationalists then that's going to come through you know if you're willing to say yeah i'm a rationalist and here's here's my life then that makes a big difference like i don't know how many rationalists there are out there but i'm pretty sure there's some that just aren't willing to say it out loud i think that's probably a lot of them just because you know it's part the exact problem we've been identifying here that it's it's awkward to identify as part of a group because that's something that every every other dime a dozen weird group does I don't um, think even aspiring rationalist is a great term. Like, just rationalist. I I liked aspiring rationalist for the what it conveyed as, like, martial artist. Right. You know, right. like, I'm getting better. Right. You know, if, like, I'm a rationalist. I'm, I'm a black belt, right? Okay, yeah. Um, but I realize that's not the connotation that is now commonly used. But that's the way that I always thought about it. So I, I can, I'm happy to move away from that. In fact, aspiring rationalist almost sounds more culty, right? right? I, I haven't gotten all the the degrees yet or something right i don't right, know right 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 um i'm only level what level one i haven't gone clear yet right still got some phaetons in me i still need a few more thousand dollars <laughs> yeah um so i think the the approach like that um and this is what like i said we talked about before is more of like a ground up approach you know mm-hmm. grassroots get groups of cool people you know that eventually draw enough attention or somehow evangelize enough whether it's through and we could talk about the different mediums to to push this out in fact, I've seen, you know, attempts to do this with like TV with, you know, skeptics and stuff too. Um, but it's hard to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the other approach, and this is what something, someone um, uh, quantical on the less, a commenter on that less wrong post uh, pointed out the other approach that I thought of too, but unfortunately they, they also thought of it and wrote it down first, um, which or was fortunately, cause it saved you the trouble of having to type it up. Well, that's true. And they probably put it better than I did. They, they top down, mm-hmm. you know, rather than bottom up have people at the top you know they, they named you know like jeff bezos bill gates or something if they said hey you know rationality that's where it's at paraphrasing what i put after that was uh yeah get famous badasses to start touting how awesome rationality is and how it was a central role in their success so the closest i can think of was like when sam harris was introducing eliezer on his podcast he said he'd read and enjoyed the sequences mm-hmm. um that was like the most famous person i've ever heard say other than you know other rationalists say that they read these and enjoyed it nice um so I don't know how many people he got to dive into them. I don't know if they're even linked to on the episode notes because no one looks at those. Yeah. Uh, actually, I sometimes do. but I, I never do. If, if someone mentioned something that I thought was interesting, I check and see if it was in there. Okay. Um, right now, unless there's people that are like that and haven't come out of the closet yet, then this group of rational, this generation of rationalists needs to grow up, be badass, right. and then say, like, this is why. Um, you can be as badass as I am. You just need to do this. Yeah. And that was, again, this language didn't turn me off at all, but I can see how it would in methods of rationality back when it was just on fanfiction.net and the, you it know, still is there too. Yeah. But when I was reading it on there before it was on somewhere else, it was like, if you want to know everything Harry knows and more, go to lesswrong.com. Yeah. And I read, you know, I'm reading from Harry's perspective and he's a fucking badass. I'm like, I want to know everything Harry knows and more. Yeah. Um, 
so that was a fictional example of this, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, doing it in fiction is one way to get people interested. I think, you know, doing it textbook style will attract a very small number of people. Doing it sequence style um, attracts more. It's more engaging. Everything's in a nicely separated and, and coherent order that, for the most part, is digestible and, and written in an engaging way, you know, with, with fun hypotheticals and anecdotes and little you know, bits of this, this and that. You know a segment that we should have on this show? Every week we should, like, read one or two of the sequences ourselves and then just comment a little bit about them at the end of the episode. I can dig it. All right. All right. Not every week, but every episode, I guess. One sequence per week since we do these every other week. Wait, a sequence per... Or not a sequence, but a post. Okay, week. yeah. I was going to say, I, I'm a slow reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But one post per week we could do. Yeah, I mean, I've got a dozen favorites I could go back and, you know, just, just summarize. No, no, from the start. Go through the whole thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like right. an old school Bible study. I mean, that sounds worth a try. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm totally down for that. So the other avenues to get it get it popularized, I really, we can sit here and think of some, but the point is, is that I think the, the meta point to make is that people are afraid to do that. That, you know, it sounds like it's it's too close to something that unfavorable groups do. It's got bad associations. And I think Matt's point, and I think I'm sold, is like, dude, just own that. Like, whatever. Yes, it's got bad associations, but so does literally every successful cool group too, right? Probably. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of examples, but, you know, if it's a great tech company, you know, the employees say... They're tech bros. Well, they're tech bros and they do tech bro-y things, but yeah. they'll also say, man, we here at Apple, we love working here. Maybe they don't say that at Apple, but, you know, um, at Amazon, they do say, we get paid a fuck ton here. Cool. And that's, that's their marketing point, right? Granted, it sucks to work there for the most part, but... You know, if you want to make a baller amount of money and never have to look for another job, because the second you just change your LinkedIn profile to looking for a job, you'll be getting inundated with emails. Nice. You know, that's the kind of thing that it's, I don't know, putting it on your, your life resume rather than your professional resume. So I don't know. I, I feel like this is the kind of thing that maybe we could do some more arguing about whether or not this is a worthwhile endeavor, but I'm sold that it is. So I feel like if anyone agrees, spend five minutes thinking about what are some ways to actually get this out there? You know, maybe it's even just like talk to your friends, share a blog, share a, a post with a friend, whether it's, it doesn't have to be any of the canon less wrong stuff if you don't want it to be. It could mm. be an adjacent article. It could be a rationally speaking podcast. It could be the Bayesian conspiracy. <laughs> it could be uh, Slate Star Codex. I don't know. I think- But preferably um, not this episode where we talk about that. Yeah. This might be a hard, they're, they're, you know, too, too steep of a jump. But honestly, I'm going to share the um, Matt's essay with a bunch of people. Oh, um, really? Or at least a few. I, I'll have to come out slowly. Like but... people who aren't uh, rationalists even? Yeah. Oh, okay. I want to know I want to know, know what reaction you get when you share that then. So I have that... Uh, I don't know if I can get him to read it. And honestly, <laughs> I mentioned... Uh, actually, Matt was here. I have that smart coworker who you know had heard about Roko's Basilisk, Basilisk oh, oh. and was yeah. like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that less wrong community. I'm interested in Decatur's reaction, but honestly, he's so much smarter than me. He would be very... You know, he's not mean, but he'd, he'd make a very... I anticipate... A very compelling counterpoint, and uh, I would be intellectually defeated. But I think that might be a fun endeavor anyway, so why not? I'll share it with him, too, if he has an eight-minute time to read this. So, Excellent. Yeah. All right, I'm ready to move past that one if you want to. Okay. Uh, yes, what was our next thing? Ah, uh, yes, the our ethical asymmetries from property rights. Uh, which sounds like a hard... It almost sounds like a typo in that. I know what it's saying. Yeah. But that sounds like a, a hard way to phrase that point, so... I... I like it. It doesn't sound like a complete sentence to me. From property rights. I guess I'm just dumb. That's really just me. That's, that's Oh, not... I see. Okay, it is It is kind of like pointing in the direction of just a concept. 
I actually don't know what it is tripping me up about it. It just doesn't sound like a complete sentence. That's not a point about the article. It's great. I just dumb. That's all I'm pointing out. So, all right, moving no, on. I guess it could have been, it gets right to the point, which our I ethical, like. Are ethical asymmetries consequences of property rights or derived yeah. from or yeah, yeah, yeah. parallel to? Or due to property rights instincts or something. Yeah. Yeah. Are they from property rights? I, you mean like a place? I don't, yeah. Again, it's I, my, I, I get what you're saying. It's my hang up. No one else says that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And this Stop is, being such a nitpicky <laughs> jerk. It's just me being too thick. Like I read it like three times and like, am I dyslexically reading that headline? Anyway, this is from Katja Grace, also on Less Wrong. Heck yeah. And Katja, not Katja? I don't know how to say it. Okay. Actually, I think it is Katja. Um, oh, yeah. I'm, she did like four or five podcasts with Robin Hanson like eight years ago. Okay. Um, way back in the day. I can't remember. I, I couldn't even find them. I remember they came up way back on iTunes and I'd search for Robin Hanson. Mm-hmm. And they were actually really hard to listen to because they recorded them outside with a microphone and you could hear like people walking by and birds and stuff. And they sounded yeah. far away from the mic. You could hear the wind. But they were fun. So. Oh, dude. Did you hear the uh, episode of Skeptic's Guide to the Universe that they recorded at DragonCon? No, that sounds like a drag. Their microphones broke, and so the recording is from like I don't know someone in the audience with a with a phone. Yeah, it's I could not listen to it after about a minute. I was like, nope, can't understand anything. This is horrible. Yeah, sorry guys. Uh, okay, so the article are ethical asymmetries from property rights starts out pointing uh, out some ethical intuitions that people often have, such as that you're not required to save a person, but you're definitely not allowed to kill them. You're not required to create a person, but you're definitely not allowed to kill one. You're not required to create a happy person, but you're definitely not allowed to create a miserable one. You're not required to help a random person who will be in a bad situation, but you definitely are not allowed to put someone in a bad situation. Actually, dire. I don't know why I rephrased that to bad. Okay. You're not required to save a person in front of a runaway train, because we always have to come back to the trolley problem, but you're definitely not allowed to push someone in front of a train. By extension, you are not required to save five people in front of a runaway train, but if you have to push someone in front of a train to do it, then you're definitely not allowed. Here's some other ethical intuitions. You're not required to give me your bread, but you're not allowed to take mine. You're not required to lend me your car, but you're not allowed to unilaterally borrow mine. You're not required to send me money, but you're not allowed to take mine. Katja points out that the former are ethical intuitions, and the latter are implications of a system of property rights. But they look very familiar, right? It almost seems like the uh, former ones are just ethical intuitions applying property rights to people and welfare. That your life is property and I'm not allowed to take your property. But I'm not obliged to give it to you if you don't have it by default. Your welfare is the same way. I'm not allowed to lessen what you have, but I don't have to give you more. Which is... When it comes down to things like why aren't people why don't people feel like they're obligated to give away all their money to people on the other side of the world who have a lot less, it's because, you know, we're not utilitarians at heart, right? Yeah. And the parallels between those things are stark as hell, right? You can basically just sub out letters and, and like that's what she does. The 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 sentences are the same. Mm-hmm. And they, they feel just as intuitive. And, you know, like the um you know, the trolley problem stuff, people have done those with, you know, large surveys and those all pan out to be true with how people actually feel. So it's not just us odd people who feel that way about these. Gotcha says that further evidence that these intuitive asymmetries are based on upholding property rights. We have moral feeling intuitions that are just straightforward property rights, like stealing is wrong. A wonderful one that I've always liked and that I've argued is that uh, people often say that if someone is worse than average like for example someone that's got an iq of 80 it'd be good to have a medical intervention that raises them up to iq 100 
or if someone is in very poor health, it'd be good to have medical intervention that raises them up to normal health. But if someone is already at IQ 100, the average, not only is there no ethical obligation to raise them to 120, it's sometimes even considered a bad thing, right? Uh, If someone is already in good health, there's no obligation to get them to an even better level of health where they can do lots of things and have tons of energy and, and be very capable all the time. And these are the sorts of asymmetries that you talk about. Um, Eliezer wrote in one of his most famous essays that if more intellect is good when you're 80, there's no point where it stops being good to have more intellect. When your IQ 80, it's good to go up to 100. When your IQ 100, it's good to go up to 120. But that's not the way ethical intuitions seem to work out in the general public. And I think a lot of it is due to this same kind of thing where People feel if you have less than 100 IQ, something has been taken away from you, and it's good to bring you back up to everyone else, but there's no reason to like give you even more that other people don't have. So I totally agree, and you're, you're, you're singing the beginning passages of tr- the transhumanism songs, right? Yeah. Um, average, normal, whatever you want to call it, middle, middling is, is good, but there's no push to, to go beyond, to transcend averageness. Um, that does strike me as distinct from the intuitions that she's making though, or the intuitions that she's marking out. So, um, because we don't feel the need to make other people average with regards to really anything, right? Right. We walk, many of us walk past beggars every day and we don't feel compelled to say, Hey, you know what? I've got expendable income. You clearly need some help. You know, let me put you up for a night. You know, there um, is some social pressure to do that though, right? Like there's a lot of people will cross the street when they see someone begging because they don't want to feel that pressure to give them money yeah i mean just to be fair people cross for other reasons too like being asked is uncomfortable but not not like there's walking past them silently is also uncomfortable but then being asked or being kind of hounded or whatever is also super uncomfortable um but yeah the um but i guess the the back to the the actual property rights the whole um ethical injunction to create many happy people does not exist which is which is weird right because that seems to follow from many of our professed moral precepts right uh that hey well i mean all of your caveats with what uh david parfit's repugnant conclusion aside like 100 happy people is good 110 people should be more good which should be that much more good goodness however you want to measure it and yet we don't have that thing. And yet we would say if they all fell down to 90, that's a drag. We should get them back up to 100. Or, or, or at the very least, you're not allowed to reduce the number of happy people. Right. Yeah. What was what was the sentence you said about, because um, I couldn't paraphrase it faithfully, it was uh, your life is like your property? Or yeah. Your, uh, what, how did she put it? Ethical intuitions seem to be just property rights as applied to lives and welfare. Your life is your property. I'm not allowed to take it, but I'm not obliged to give it to you if you don't by default have it. Your welfare is your property. I'm not allowed to lessen what you have, but I don't have to give you more of it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, if you see a sick person, you're not ethically obliged to put the rest of your life on hold and try to work to make them better. And yet, if you go to work sick, you're an asshole. <laughs> and certainly, if you deliberately get somebody sick, oh my god, you're, you're yeah. a monster. So. If you like put tuberculosis in their cup or something, right? Yeah. Um, this is like the murder offsets question, right? The <laughs> you remember the meat offsets, right? Yes. Okay. Well, the, the murder offsets being the same kind of idea. If I save three people's lives, can I kill two people? <laughs> because I'm still net one life positive. Our intuitions say no, right? Yeah. Um, and I think I guess I wanted to run with the spirit of this of this post. Like, what should we conclude from this? 
you know, are does that mean that we should re-examine these these moral intuitions? Do we just say that makes perfect sense that these be our intuitions? Because you know, as apes, we care a lot about our stuff. Well, I mean, we certainly do care about our stuff. So the property rights intuitions make sense. Um, I don't know exactly when this happened sometime in the past decade, maybe even longer ago than that. But I, I've, I'm of the opinion that ethics is really a way... What did they? Uh, what did Katja say here? Um, property rights at least appear to be systems for people with diverse goals to coordinate use of scarce resources, which is to say somehow use the resources with low levels of conflict and destruction. In my opinion, ethics is basically the same thing. Ethics is a way for people to be able to live with each other and do things together with low amounts of conflict and destruction. Which is why if you are a single person alone on a deserted island, there's no such thing as ethics, right? There's nothing that is morally good or morally bad that you could do on that island because there's no other persons to interact with. Unless you're a virtue ethicist or something weird, but... Even then, I don't think virtue ethics exists. But I think Plato would say you're living life wrong, or Aristotle would say you're living life wrong if you're pissed all the time or something, right? You're not, you're not flourishing. I I, we'll, have, we'll have to dig up a virtue ethicist from somewhere. Well, I, I feel like I'm a virtue ethicist, <laughs> but I again, I wouldn't care. You can have any virtues that you want once you're on a deserted island. Okay. Okay. So yeah, we're. I think we're. I think this is a tangent, but the Greeks, I think they used they used ethics, morality differently than we do. Like to them, it wasn't just like this set of beliefs about like right and wrong. It was about like living a good life in a oh, in well, a well-rounded sense they had certain virtues that they aspired to but you know the virtues are determined by what works right and on desert and, island it doesn't really matter well i think what I mean, works to make life to, to make society function or to make life worth make, make life good even though it was just your life i think i think you're right they did argue. actually do yeah a lot of it was like what is the good life not just like how do i interact with other people right or how okay. do i not go to jail yeah, yeah. um but I think we're getting bogged down. Uh, <laughs> okay. But the problem of how to, I don't know, interact. Th- this is bringing to mind uh, another thing I just heard, but I don't want to get us off of the post just yet. Um, but the very, last Very Bad Wizards podcast was on a very similar topic. So, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, Katja says that since um, economic systems and property rights, those systems don't have any specific goal, right? Anything that is labeled as good. It's just smooth sharing and of resources and making things work together. And when we think of ethics as as utilitarians, we have a goal, right? Maximize utility. Uh, but I don't I don't think ethics in general really has that goal. And so utilitarianism is it is it is separate from ethics as it is normally understood by people, I guess, because I don't think people are trying to maximize utility. No. Uh, it doesn't seem like that is the function of ethics in society. And if we impose that goal on ethics, we may be misinterpreting what the purpose of ethics is i feel like it's not a taboo ethics okay use it too many times in a sentence so oh, like, you're right Sorry. well no no but i mean i mean that not in a, not in a way just to um to be pedantic but also just because in a way you're right because people have different I, I it's hard to like argue people oh yeah that's ethics that's morality that's whatever and it's like no fine let's just talk about making the world better yeah or making you a happier person right. or you know making or making society happier and yes happiness is whatever your intuition says minus all your philosophical objections to happiness mm-hmm. um which was uh how julia galef defined defines eudaimonia um, which is the what the flourishing that Aristotle talked about? How did you define it again? Uh, happiness minus whatever your philosophical objections are to happiness, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. which I think I think lands really well. Yeah. Um, 
it takes a philosopher to say happiness is a bad thing. Or mm-hmm. what do you mean by happy? Is I mean exactly what everyone thinks I mean. Quit, quit being an ass, right? Right. So, yeah, I think it depends on what kind of question you're answering there, right? How do I be the best I, best me I can be? How do I um, be the best me in society? How do I make the best society that I can with or without me? Yeah. Um, I guess I just what, I found, I'm, what I'm saying is I think utilitarians are almost sort of a good heart's law example good heart's law being i don't remember the exact wording of it but when the metric becomes the goal it stops being a good metric uh being like the the purpose of school ostensibly is to educate the youth and we measure if we're doing a good job of that or not by giving tests and once everyone realizes it then the goal starts to become get students better at tests uh, and so we have lost the true purpose of educating students for this new purpose of doing very good on the metric. And it, it almost feels like utilitarianism is the same kind of thing where what we want is human flourishing and happiness and people to work together. And that is measured through utility. And so utilitarianism now tries to maximize utility, even though the whole point of making the flourishing happen is not necessarily maximizing utility but getting humans to live alongside each other in ways that are conducive to cooperation and anti-conducive to conflict yeah maybe i mean Um, at least that's my opinion of what most ethical systems that what their purpose is i think you make a good point i think it does make sense to maybe compartmentalize utilitarianism as this thing you do when you're sitting down with your checkbook every year like where am i going to give my charity money to um you know in in your day-to-day life it's hard to think of um, maybe in things that the average person does every day, you know, what is the way I can maximize the goodness from what I'm doing on this random little thing. But you can be like courteous and this and that things that cost you very little, but are, you know, make a big deal to somebody else um, or, you know, make you both happy because you you're happy helping them, like giving up your seat on the train or something. Right. And I think utilitarianism may be a very worthy goal. It may be a great idea to try to maximize the amount of utility in the universe I just don't think that's necessarily what systems of ideas of how we should live together is for. <laughs> Trying to taboo the word ethics no, here. You did a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm not a moral philosopher, but I think some some moral philosophers might just say, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, but I think the most eloquent utilitarians more talk about, like, how do you make the world suck less for the people who are having the hardest time? Yeah. Uh, or for the things that are having the hardest time, you know? So, like, not factory farming animals or not factory farming your meat, rather. Right. Um or, you know, helping the bottom billion of the planet, you know, just not be sick and die young. Like, that's the kind of thing you don't have to be a moral philosopher to say, yeah, we should do those things. And so, you know, a utilitarian might say, okay, then let's try and find out the best approaches and actually do those. Whereas um, lesser moral frameworks might just say, just do whatever makes you feel good or something. I don't know. I'm straw manning on purpose. But yeah, I think um, I really like listening to like people like Peter Singer and Will McCaskill talk about... Um, what they're doing. Someone's like, hey, what do you do as, what's an effective altruist to do and why? Um, in fact, Will, Will McCaskill was just on Very Bad Wizards podcast too. And uh, I heard that one. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. And he's very eloquent. I, I love hearing him talk and he does a really good job. Um, was it on, he was on Sam Harris's podcast too in the last year or so, back before his podcast started sucking. And I'm kidding. They're, they're, some of them are okay now. Um, he's bouncing back. But uh I the, think effective altruism is probably one of the greatest PR moves that rationality has. That's a good point. Yeah, because rationality was a large part of the the takeoff of effective altruism. 
Probably the definitely scene. It wasn't the, all of it, but it was a large chunk of that initial getting it going, getting it getting it popularized for sure. Yeah, because because rationalists saw it and like, yep, that's optimal. Let's grab that and and run with it. Right. Um. So like, I think I'm sure he wasn't the first, but you know, this this got popular. This got, was in what New York Times or the another big journal I forget. In 1975, was Peter Singer's famine affluence and morality essay. Um, where he illustrated the whole, you know, walking past a kid drowning in a pond thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, I'm not going to go in because my fifty dollars, my fifty dollars shoes will get ruined, mm-hmm. and you'd be a, you'd be a complete monster. And he's like, yeah, that's the situation we're all in now, except it's a kid across the world, and it's not even your fifty dollars shoes; it's your daily Starbucks or you know your 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 totally superfluous whatever, right? So, How do we put that in context of this essay? Um, because most people would say, um. If you see a kid drowning in a pool, you are obligated to go in and save it, even if it would ruin your suit. But that conflicts with the, you are not obligated to give someone more life if it would destroy your own property, right? Hmm. I, I think this thought, may be a counter-argument. Well, my first thought is that that's a lot of the like counterintuitiveness pushback that Singer got, and that effective, altru- effective altruism still gets. Okay. And it's like, it's not my fucking job. Right. Um, so well, some it's, people it's still not feel your that fucking way. job when it's someone across the world, right? But if there was literally a child dying next to you, anyone who didn't sacrifice their suit to save the child would be considered a monster. I guess maybe like you might feel more pressure to, like if your neighbor was displaced due to a fire, you might say, hey, spend the night at my house till you get your back on your feet. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to like put up a, an ad to like house refugees from across the world. Yeah. So I think that might just, I don't know if it contrasts with this essay or not, but it might just be the same kind of psychological distance thing. You know, that's them over there. I can't see them. And, you know, I can see my crying neighbor standing out in the street watching their house go up in flames. I think that's, I think that's a decent pushback against this saying that, you know, lots of times people use these systems of incentives, social incentives to push back just past uh, property rights morality. That property rights would say, yeah, you're not uh, required to save that child, but since the loss of value of losing a child is so astronomical and the loss of value in losing your shoes is so minor in comparison that if you are not willing to lose your shoes to save somebody else's child, you will be very harshly punished by the rest of society because that is just too much of a um, a defecting in one of those situations. You defect when you don't save the child, you get more utility at the great loss to the child's parents. Whereas in a cooperative scenario... You lose your shoes, but the society as a whole is a lot richer, and so you get punished if you didn't co- cooperate there. Yeah, I think that requires some rewiring of our like other intuitions about how to operate in society, though, right? Because we don't feel that way, and it's weird. Um, don't we? Not really. Like, I mean, I, I remember if you seeing... see someone dying, you you definitely feel the no, no. I, okay, but 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 we don't feel that way with people across the world. No, no. And well, so... because the purpose of the systems of social punishment and reward is to make it so that you can coordinate with the people you actually interact with right yes and no i mean i remember seeing numbers about like how many billions came in in donations like the three thousand families affected by the 2000 or the 2001 september 11th attacks oh yeah and that was you know billions came in from other citizens of the united states going over to you know families to people who worked in new york yeah um I think I sent 10 bucks and I was like in sixth grade. Um, but that's because we all felt like family at that moment, right? Right. Yeah. And so, but these aren't people we'll ever see or interact with. And no. yet they're part of our tribe. Yeah. And so maybe that's the thing. So 
our tribe doesn't have to be people we see every day or ever, but it has to be people that we feel identified with. Right. And that's where I meant that we'd have to recalibrate our moral intuitions to just feel that way about everybody. That is interesting, though, because, yeah, I mean, when Florence is done ravaging, it's it's hurricane business. I'm sure there'll be, you know, outpourings of money from people in the from citizens of the United States to help them out like there is every good hurricane. Mm-hmm. And yet, or if anyone has numbers to the contrary, I'm happy to see them. But I bet it's far less than like every other major crisis that hits the rest of the world. Right. You know, we just don't care when a million people are displaced from Sudan because not our problem. Right. I say that with the all the contempt that that should feel. But, and yet I didn't give anything. I don't know no. why. No. Um I know exactly why. They're very far away, and it's not my problem. <laughs> I I cannot literally help everyone. That's true. And yet, like, you, you I, give, I, I talk about being a nice person trying to do nice things, and yet, like... You and, give your 10% to the most effective places you can, right? And hopefully, as we knock more and more problems down, that 10% will move to higher and higher places. And we can rationalize and say, hey, you know what? These, these large-scale problems will hit the news, and other people will give money to them. So I don't have to, but like the Against Malaria Foundation isn't the sexy charity to give to. Right. But, you know, the save, save the kids from, you know, the Salvation Army, or not the Salvation Army. The, um, <laughs> well, save them from the Salvation yeah, Army too. I was but. thinking, uh, what, the, the Lord's Resistance Army. Mm. Um, you know, that's that was a valuable thing. I'm sure that got lots of people to participate. Yeah, this is muddy. I don't know. Mm. But that said, Koch's essay is short, and it's really interesting to just feel the weird tickle when you realize like, oh shit, I feel the same way about my stuff as I do about like my morals. Yeah. Uh, Katja did also uh, make the point, which you pointed out here that uh, it's interesting. The article isn't trying to argue that property rights are good. And uh, it asks that maybe we should write off some of our moral intuitions and reasons on consequential grounds or some of our moral reasoning on consequential grounds. If they are outgrowths of property rights, intuitions, because Property rights does not seem like a correct consequentialist way to think of things like overall utility of the human race. Yeah. Just had to throw that in before no, we it's good. moved on. Um, well, yeah, the article is not pro, we should base all things on property rights. It's just thinking about that. It's just it's just noticing that that is a thing that's out there and it's kind of interesting to notice. Yeah. And raise the question of how to react to that. I think it was the most recent episode of the Very Bad Wizards podcast was uh well they talked about another thing that i want to maybe touch on as a joke and whoever get around to the uh random things to indulge steven slash stir the pot section but the um okay we'll find a better name for that but right the, touch steven's pot <laughs> yeah the second part so if you ever listen to bad, very bad wizards they um first of all they do that nice thing where they break up their sound file with like flags that some players can see oh that's and so cool. it'll say what section you're in so you can skip right past the intro right past the uh thanks for you know thanks and solicitations and all that yeah. um and so their first section is usually about something kind of random that's like between them and then the second one the first section is usually my favorite it's pretty good i'm like i like hearing them talk about random shit that's yeah. going on it's good um but then the second one on this one they talked about a paper by george sure called um could i be or no that could i be wrong was the name of the episode i don't know if you're interested, look up the Very Bad Wizards episode, Could I Be Wrong? But basically, it talked about, among other things, because it's philosophy paper, and I don't listen to podcasts like with a pen and paper in hand. I tend to just be doing other things, and mm-hmm. you know, if I'm playing on my phone on the train ride home, I'm catching most of it. So it was much more in-depth than this, but he talked about how people with different lived experiences will come to different moral intuitions than you, mm-hmm. duh, but does this cast doubt on our moral intuitions because we're obviously right and they're obviously wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we, 
you know, I'm actually going to look up the name of the episode because they put it really well. Um, Am I Wrong, I think was the name of the episode. Yep, number 148. What happens once we realize that our moral convictions are not better justified than the convictions of people who disagree with us? Does, does this mean it's no longer rational to act on our moral intuitions? And is the problem deeper for moral beliefs than it is for empirical or aesthetic beliefs? Um, I kind of had some issues with this episode because um, it, it came from the assumption that my moral beliefs are something that I arrived to because uh, due to, you know, how my life circumstances, how I was handed them, and that everyone else is more or less the same, and so we should consider them equal. And this this just sounded like arguments made by people who have never had a significant revision of their morals. And I I have a number of times in my life very closely looked at my morals and made significant changes to my morality. And so I do have a bit more, at least it sounded compared to them, a, a bit more grounding and more certainty that I am as right as I can be in this situation. And I realize I'm not completely right, certainly not about everything. There's some things I haven't looked into that much, but... Um, I'm right about everything I know about. <laughs> the things I don't know about, you know, maybe I'm not right about. Right. Well, I mean, not even necessarily that. There's things I can be mistaken about too, right? But they were just like, well, you know, nobody's morals really got there through any sort of logical, reasonable process, so we should assign all of them the same amount of uncertainty. I'm like, no. No, think... there's a few things that I am very, very sure of. And... and I don't think that's what they landed either. They entertained it, it that way. It like but, they were saying that. But they even said flat out, like, we're never going to decide that rape is okay. Right. You know, that's not, that's not an ethical belief we need to be unsure about. And mm. anybody who says it is is just wrong. Same with, you know, murder, torturing kids, all the obvious things. Yeah, um, but, you know, those are the obvious things. They, they were talking about some less obvious things. Right. Like the those... value of religion, or they, they specifically called out abortion several times. And so, that is one of the ones that I'm actually rather sure on, you know? And and I am too. And yet I can think of, like, I guess it wouldn't be so much, like, personal experiences. Although I could think of some that might flavor my, if, if I were somebody, you know, if I had known two girls, you know, who had, you know, I'm not sure what the death rate is for getting an abortion. Probably one in a million or something really small, right? Um, but it's got to be non-zero. Mm-hmm. So if I knew somebody who had died getting one, I might be I might be more anti-abortion than I am, right? Mm-hmm. Especially somebody I really cared about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but I'd like to say, you know, nope, she was an anomaly. Everyone else should still have them. They're safe, whatever. But I could see how for some people that might be an argument. That one's maybe less um, less defensible. Although I could certainly think of empirical judgment or empirical observations that could be made that would immediately change our mind on the subject. But um oh on abortion you mean yeah 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 Yeah, i mean if we if we like if you could prove that an embryo was a person or a soul or if if souls are real like you know well no if souls are real then all abortion should be mandatory because the soul gets right to heaven without having to worry about sinning what if you could prove that an aborted soul went to hell oh Uh, well yeah yeah, so so you know whatever (laughs) you can twist that but you know or like if you if you learned that there's some weird magic of physics you know you know hitherto undreamt of biology where you know at eight weeks an embryo is more sentient and alive than you'll ever be as an adult right um then it's like oh shit we definitely can't do it at that point right maybe wait till they're born or something i don't know but um so i could think of empirical things to change our mind on that but mm-hmm. i was trying to think of one and this one actually worked because it, it got me uncomfortable just thinking about mm-hmm. but like i could see how someone's position on something more gray like immigration in in the united states um that that's probably almost largely colored by personal experience or lack thereof right like my life's never been adversely impacted by uh immigrant by i'm trying to say immigrant immigrants from legal or otherwise status um 
And yet I know people who have, right. um, you know, if you, if you work in a rural part of the country and you're only good at manual labor, but you're trying to, you know, live a life with a couple of roommates or whatever it is and, you know, make a living. And yet there are people who are willing to do it for way less than you mm-hmm. because they're willing to, I guess, live in conditions that you're not willing to live in. Well, you're out of a job. And I know people who've lost jobs that way. Um, not in the last decades, but I'm sure it still happens. But, um, in those things, I say, nope, this, I've seen it. It ruins small economies in small areas or something. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're, that they're justified in believing it for that reason, right? They're going to say, nope, that's why I'm against it. And yet where the rest of us cosmopolitan people are going to say, no, no, it's how could it be bad? Um, or whatever it is. I'm not sure. You know, my opinion on it is not very well calibrated. Yeah, but, no, no, no. Um, so that's one that I think is pretty... Uh, one where you can assign a certain level of uncertainty to, to yeah. your belief. And so this is where... Um, and McCaskill talked about this on his episode of uh, Very Bad Wizards, which might have been the most the previous one, 147. He talked about making moral judgments under uncertainty, and he used a lot of the same language from the you know the rationality papers um, that you can you can make estimates on what your confidence is in on these moral propositions, and then run your Bayesian calculation and do whatever it says, um, just like the rest of us good rationalists should do with all of our other beliefs. Anyway, fun fun episode. I thought it lightly related to this, and that um, not only are our intuitions for some weird reason tightly coupled with our beliefs about property rights, but they're also uh, some of our less um so you know i could be 99 percent sure that abortion is a good is is a it's valuable to have around and that everyone should they should be how did bill clinton put it um safe affordable and rare um so you know some some other people say people should have abortions all the time and they should be you know you should get 20 bucks for getting one or something but that's that's not me uh, <laughs> okay. so uh like if you'd be willing to get an abortion for 20 bucks you probably should get the abortion that's actually a good point yeah yeah um I can't think of actually money that if you're if any amount of money that you're going to offer somebody that said you probably shouldn't get it right. If I was going to give you two million dollars to get one, you should definitely get an abortion for two million dollars, right? Well, I mean, if you're going to have a kid, first you have an abortion to get two million dollars so you can finance the kid and the college and everything. That's right. Yeah. Um, it did make me think that if we ever find something we really disagree on, that we can crux uh, with a double crux game style thing. That'd make for a fun episode. That would be awesome. So, do we disagree that strongly on anything? I don't know if we disagree on anything strongly that is empirically. I think part of part of the double crux game is that, like your belief rests on something that's true or false that we disagree on the va- the fact of something. Right. And that's the other thing about moral intuitions is that many of them come down to matters of fact. And so people, you know, like if someone's pro death penalty or anti death penalty, I think they use this in the in the episode too. Mm-hmm, um, you know, it comes down to like what you believe about redemption for people or how much it costs to keep somebody alive in prison versus how much it costs to kill them. Um, and what the deterrence value of the death penalty is. Right. And I, so I heard a wonderful point recently that uh, their death penalty should never be used for uh, crimes of passion. Uh, generally things like murder, assault, because the argument was that people are usually not fully in their control of their rational capabilities when they commit these crimes. So the fact that there is a death penalty for them doesn't doesn't really deter them totally uh whereas the place where you really want to implement the death penalty is things like white collar crimes that's what i was going to say i hadn't heard this argument but that's that's exactly where i knew it was going yeah the cold calculated crimes that you carry out right that you know are fucking people but yeah. you're okay with it if you embezzle a hundred thousand dollars sorry death penalty because <laughs> no one's ever going to embezzle money again <laughs> Yeah, it's not the, true. Some people still would, but it'd be more of a deterrent. But would, it would actually be a deterrent in that case. Whereas, yeah. you know, for a, a a flight of rage murder, you're not deterring anybody. Everyone knows it's against the law to kill people. I think it still um, deters some people, possibly. 
a flight of rage murder? <laughs> like did something in the back of your head being like, I could be killed for this. I don't know enough killers, I guess, to yeah. have a good mental that's model good of what point. it's like to, to murder, to decide to murder somebody. But I've got to think that if you're deciding to, that's, that's in fact, the, the law takes that into account, right? Mm. If you decide to murder somebody. Yeah, yeah, it's first then, degree murder. Then it's it's different. And, you know, mm-hmm. it it's also me deciding to murder you if you and I are having a fight and I grab a pen and stab you with it. But that would probably be punished differently than if I, you know, went off and got poisoned and slowly killed you over the next two months with it, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I'd be a much more sinister monster for doing that. And everyone recognizes yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I don't know where we're going with this. Uh, yeah, something about... matters the fact of being the, oh, the, yeah, yeah, the crux yeah. well, of moral I mean, positions. I think actually the, the immigration thing is a matter of fact, right? Yeah. Like, you can actually test whether um, loosening immigration laws leads to, in general, better or worse outcomes for people in low wage industries well i, I remember yeah, but then, then you have to make a moral judgment about whether that's an okay consequence of doing the right thing i mean that too yeah so like, i, I we, do we, remember hearing a story about uh on npr of course uh about a a chicken you know one of those chicken plucking factory poultry farms what do they call them where they kill a bunch of chickens and process them for food well it's called a chicken factory farm i don't know if there's a name for them okay but uh basically chicken factory okay (laughs) chicken factory there was uh it started like 10 years ago with they hired one or two uh hispanic people um and mexican immigrants i think they were uh i I don't necessarily want to say that because some of them might have been from central america but let's just say mexican immigrants for now uh one or two everyone was like cool with them like yeah that's maria over there she does good work but uh more and more started coming into the city and uh, eventually it got to the point where there was maybe only one out of any any 20 people there uh, was not a, you know, Mexican native. And, uh, and everyone spoke Spanish. The few people from the, that originally had been in the town, like, didn't have anyone to talk to at work. And they felt, like, really cheated because they, like you said, had taken all the these these jobs for a lower amount of work and less uh, and worse work conditions. And so there were a number of people in the town really upset about the whole immigration thing, but they, someone came in and like looked at the town economy overall, and all the people coming in and working at the the chicken factory now were spending the money in the community on other things, and that created new jobs in places like you know stores and yeah, like it's possible that people may not realize that they're better off, even though they are, by having people do these jobs. Well, and some of it too might be. Um... I, I'm not like now they also or... get much lower prices on their chicken when they go and buy chicken. That's true. And I mean, I saw a thing on um, Reddit just a couple days ago. I think I spent too much time on Reddit is what's coming out of tonight's conversation. But um, <laughs> the all thanks to the great Apollo app for iOS. Sorry. Uh, someone, you know, grabbed their chicken thing. They're, you know, you buy that thing of wrapped chicken from the store and it's like already pre-cut and it's got that wet soppy thing in the bottom that brines it or something. And right. um, they took it you know it was like a dollar ninety nine a pound from walmart and they bought four pounds worth or whatever and they put on a scale and it was like three pounds and two ounces or something and like yeah but with the whole wrapper and everything it's four pounds and it's like yeah you're paying for the whole thing and the top comment was some canadians like i don't know how you guys could possibly have chicken for a dollar ninety nine a pound like that's the t- that's the takeaway from this right is our chicken's fucking super cheap so okay. you're right the cool thing about cheap labor is that you get cheap products and I'm sure there's all kinds of terrible outcomes to that, that you get nightmare factories, you know, where uh, our iPhones are made from, you know, people that don't want to make them and, uh, or I guess would rather have other options maybe sometimes. I don't know. Yeah. I have mixed thoughts on sweatshops too, because I don't think there are products that you're buying in the West that often that come from people who are changed to desks, but 
some people work there because they want to, you know, but it's one of those weird exploity things. It's like, yeah, you want to because or else. And, you know, the or else thing is, you know, a real thing, but it's. But I mean, the or else thing is just, it's a fact of life. Like, even if there were no factories like that, your your option was, would be, I grow my own food or else I starve to death. Oh, totally. Uh, I don't know. It's something about, when I first heard that argument articulated, I felt just like this kind of weird repugnance and my mind went straight to like, because I do this whenever I hear like a new argument. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, let's turn it up to stupid and see see how it's, how let's turn it up to 11 and see how stupid it sounds. Yeah. It's so like, all right, so let's like go to, you know, war-torn um, uh, Sudan and, you know, talk to some refugees. I'm like, hey, you can come live in my house and clean it and do all this stuff. Mm. And I can have sex with you whenever you want, but, or I can leave you here. What would you like? So it's like, it's the exact same argument, kind yeah. of, but, yeah. it, but no one, I think, would say that's okay. Mm. Unless you're going to just bite the bullet and say, I guess she would rather be raped three times a week than, you know, die in, in, in this, this war-torn nation. So, I mean, to be fair, I would rather be raped three times a week than die. Uh, but I'd rather neither of those happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think, think the person, yeah. Making, I think the person making that offer is a bad person. Yes. And that, that's, that's my takeaway. Not that like they shouldn't take the offer or whatever it is. It's just like, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. And yet you're still kind of fucked up for saying, you're not, not for saying it for, for being offering. the kind of person who wants to do that. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think that basically is, like, comes down to people saying that there's a difference between getting raped and money. That That is where people would argue with you. They'd be like, you know what? Those are two very different things, and you cannot compare them in that way. Yeah, and like giving you literally no money is wrong, but giving you, not joking, a penny a day, mm-hmm. that can't be less, that is, I guess, technically less wrong, but it's not good. It's not better. They're never going to not be able to not be your slave because they can't ever save that money and go do something else, right? Yeah. So... I don't know. It's a whole thing, and I'm sounding probably like an idiot to anyone who knows anything. So, let's just let's just pivot. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, where do we want to go from here? Spamming microintentions to generate willpower. Yeah, this was fun. That was really cool. All right, spamming microintentions to generate willpower, which is another post on Less Wrong by Matt Freeman, aka Mordina Mail, aka Doof Podcast Media Fame. Um, <laughs> He's We're just going to keep plugging that, that, that podcast, aren't we? Well, I, I like it. No, I, like I, I do too, actually. Yeah. I've been really enjoying it. And holy shit, their coverage on their last episode of We've Got Ward. Yeah. Uh, you didn't, did you read enough of Worm to get to any of the interlude chapters? Yeah. So they did one for a character that, for really complicated reasons that takes long to get into, you never really see all that much. You see him about half the time, maybe less. Mm-hmm. Um, half the time, what? Of the story that he, that, okay, so he shares physical, he shares a body, he shares physical space with his twin brother they both triggered with their ma- with their uh superpower at the same time okay and for whatever reason the the way that powers work they don't care i guess about twins being separate people oh. so the womb they're the same they uh basically did you see get out that yes was, so, yes they got that going so yeah one of them is sitting in the chair okay. watching through the eyes another one's driving okay and then when they switch out they switch bodies another one's in the chair okay and it's that's that's as bad as it sounds okay. um you know they they don't get along well. They 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 oh. triggered during a fight where they were basically killing each other. Ooh, um, like it escalated. One was strangling the other one. The other one started stabbing him with a pen because he couldn't breathe. Wait, and how could they kill each other if they're never in the same? This was before they triggered with their superpower. Ah, ah, okay. So then then the one wakes up and he can't find his brother and because they don't know the other one's in there. Okay. Um, so like they're not aware of it. That what mm. happened is that from since it's the interlude chapters, everyone should read Worm and Ward. <laughs> so they you get to follow the story of the protagonist from their point of view, mm. and then the author throws in usually at the end of arcs, but sometimes in the middle, 
a chapter from a perspective of the non-protagonist, some random character, and it's never the same character twice. And if it is the same character twice, well, they're a different person now. So in this one, um, this is another part of the protagonist's team. It, it, it just, it's really well done. Everyone should read this. Um, why did I talk about this? Oh, because I'm, I'm playing up Doof Media, yeah. and, uh, and we've got Ward. Um, anyway, their coverage of it was really well, oh. really well done. And because they actually like read it with the intention of discussing it, they, they typically read it more than once. And they said what I, what, well, I only read the chapter once and they went through and did a really balanced version of it. I'm like, how the hell were you guys worked that hard to come out that fair to the other person in this? And they were like, on my first read, I was totally on this guy's side. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Cause I only read it once. Now I was on this guy's side the whole time. But then they point out everything that, uh, really makes it a much more balanced situation. It's now nah, I'm totally going on about it too long, but okay. if everyone liked how articulate Matt was a couple weeks ago, they're that great on their show all the time. And it's really funny. So check it out. Excellent. Anyway, speaking of Matt being super articulate, he wrote a great post, which tied into our one a few weeks ago with Jess um, on spamming micro intentions to generate willpower. Yes. So yeah, this was a really good post. Yeah, and it's like, and what I like about the new less wrong format is that what I hate about it, for one, is that for whatever reason on my browser, text is like the middle third of the page mm-hmm. with these gigantic white bars on the white on the side, hmm. and the text is small, so I've got to zoom it in to read it, uh, which is I don't know if that's just me. In any case, so that's the downside about the new less wrong website. But the, I, I think that's like an aesthetic choice that a lot of places are going to right now, and everyone hates it. Yeah, everyone hates the new Reddit design. Everyone hates the new Gmail design. Why um, do people take good things and destroy them like that? Our friend uh, Zikaran made a good good argument on or pointed this out on a uh, might have been on Facebook, which I somehow saw this week. It was um, that I think he had a good word for it. And I'm sure it's probably the tech word, but basically they they plateau at what is good, but they can't leave it that way because it gets stagnant. So they've got to just change it for the sake of changing it. And that means doing whatever is popular, whatever. So um, people don't like how Gmail is now round as opposed to sharp corners on things and this and that. It's, but, everything looks like it's made for five-year-olds. It's, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. So that's we'll see how this all shakes out with the end of the trends of, you know, in a couple of years, things will be different. Well, it's fun to see. All right, now we're getting way off track, but here we are. So um, you can, I can try and find this image if anyone cares, or you can just look it up of the evolution of app icons over the last several years, especially Google's. Um, they used to all look different, and now they all look exactly like every other Google one. So let's see, where's my Google Apps? Uh, Gmail is a G, you know, in a white background. The Docs is a document with a white background, and the document little icon is smaller inside that little icon. I don't know where my other Google Apps are, but point is they all look like that every android app too they all they all do the same thing where they just get smaller versions of themselves and they get rounder okay that's the bad thing about the less wrong website okay the good thing is that it shows the read time at the top of the article yeah which is fun and i'm sure that's generated from the average person's reading speed you know times the number of words in there or whatever or divided by the number of words for me it's three times that because i'm slow at reading but for me it was a 10 minute read which is great and uh so for a three-minute read, you can discover... Did they what... say this is a three-minute read? I think so. Jesus Christ, who reads that fast? Hold on, let me double-check. Well, now that we're here, we gotta... Okay, that's it. The Less Wrong website looks great on a phone. Cool. Microintentions, three-minute read is what it says. That's what it says. Three minutes. That's ridiculous. There's no way I could read this in three minutes. All right, so it'll take you ten minutes. Who cares? Yeah. One is, this isn't a ten-hour investment to read this book or whatever. It's a fun little thing that... Um, I really liked, and I'm eager to give it a shot, and I was going to when I was reading this, because he gives part two of the post is, here's an example to try in real life, but it was almost time to come over, and I didn't have time to do it, so okay. um, I didn't have enough time to do enough micro-intentions to make it happen, so... Oh, you didn't get to part two? 
I, well, I, I read the part. I had enough time to actually generate enough micro intentions to, oh, to, get, okay, to okay. actually make myself do the thing. Did you do 10 push-ups when you read part two? I did not. Oh, so, yeah. well, well I mean, I was to? at work. Okay. Yeah. But so anyway, the idea, um, it, it, he was inspired by a, a Reddit post on uh meditation subreddit. And basically um, the takeaway for the applicable part here is that if you have something that you want to do, but you're having difficulty generating the motivation to do it, especially if it's something small, like oh, I got to take out the trash or fold my laundry or whatever it is, all that's required is a very light touch of intention, as if you're trying to brush a fragile snowflake with the tip of a feather. When this quick, gentle intention is repeated consistently, perhaps with every breath cycle or even two or three times during each breath, it grows and the mind eventually complies. I call these micro-intentions to highlight their quick, light, gentle quality. What's fun is that in the good rationalist sense, he finds some synergy between something unrelated and makes it to something that he can do more often mm-hmm. um, with with more applicability. So um, your first micro-intention appears to do nothing because you're just touching it with a feather. You just It's just there. But if you spam yourself with this thought, and that's part of what you need mindfulness, and that's why this is a meditation thing, just over and over, you know, every couple of seconds for a minute, you know, uh, maybe two. Mm-hmm. And he, he talked about this, and I got to this point in part two where he says, it occurred to me that sustained micro-intentions could be a very generally powerful tool. I've tested it enough to certify, certify it as something that I'll keep in my toolkit. And I figured I would just share it since I think it would be replicable in the, its most basic implementation. He says, all right, so try it out. You probably don't want to do, you probably don't want to do 10 push-ups right now. If you give yourself a push to do it, an intention, you'll probably encounter resistance. If you don't encounter resistance to doing push-ups, then find some other small activity that you really don't want to do right now, but you feel re- and that you feel resistance to doing, but when in principle be doable. Um, that's why I mentioned laundry or whatever. He says, now that you found that resistance, just start spamming micro-intentions. That push you just tried to test for resistance, just do that again, but lighter. So lightly, so lightly that you don't even really care if your body complies. Just doing it roughly every one or two seconds or as frequently as it feels right. This is important too. I found that it also helps to sustain a meta intention of producing micro intentions to do push-ups. Otherwise, there's a risk you'll quickly get bored or distracted because it's a weird thing to ask your brain to do, especially if you don't have any evidence that it'll work. In about 15 to 45 seconds of sustained little pushes, you may suddenly start to feel a little weird, like you're suddenly uncomfortable just sitting there. None of the other activities that were on your immediate docket seem all that appealing anymore. It may occur to you that the only way to alleviate this discomfort is just to get up and do those push-ups. Then if you do them, it'll feel natural and inevitable to do so, and the, resist- and the resistance is no longer present. What I love about this is that I do a less um, less gentle version of this, but I'm going to try this uh, next week because I'm not going to work tomorrow because um, I go to the gym over lunch. And most days, no one wants to go to the gym. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, like... If I haven't gone over like a three day weekend, I'm like, I need to go to the gym. I feel I feel weird. Yeah, yeah. But even then, like, you know, the ten minutes leading before it, you know, you you're gonna go work. It's not fun. Yeah. And yet I keep telling myself, Nope, you're gonna feel great, let's do it. Yeah. I'm gonna try this and just like you know, I'll sit sit at my desk for a minute and just spam this over and over and be yeah. like, No, no, just just get up and do it, get up and do it. And I but I I did this with the push ups thing, even though I didn't actually get around to doing the actual push ups. Yeah. And I felt that kind of like I don't want to sit down anymore. Nice. Maybe it was because I, maybe it's because he said he don't want to sit down anymore. Maybe he's, he's mind, yeah. mind whammying us. Yeah. Right. Um, but uh, I, I will say that I, I mean, I first time I read this was today, but I work out when I get home from work and I, lots of times I also don't want to, but I'll just like flop down out of bed. and be like, ah, like, okay, gotta get up and do this. Just think about doing it for a while. Like visualize myself, myself doing it. I'm like, yeah, 
I gotta do this. And and after about like three, four minutes, like not only do I get a bit rested from laying down on the bed, but I'm like, yeah, I gotta do this now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I do it. And I, I I never thought of it as spamming myself with micro intentions, but yeah, that totally it seems to have worked for me at any rate. And and for me, I think it might be. And I'm not sure if one's more effective than the other, but this is distinct. I think from sitting there thinking. I got to do this. Oh, yeah. No, you and, can't just think the words, I got to do this. Well, or, you got to like you, you, visualize doing it. Well, that, that may be too, but I think that that's even more intense than what this is saying. Okay. This, you know, this is just a light kind of like, if you ever tried meditating, just that kind of the gentle thing you do when you realize you're distracted and just kind of get back to focusing on the breath or whatever noise you're, oh, you're oh, listening oh. to or whatever. Um, Let's just get back just, to that. Just that kind of just like, nope. Yep. There it is. Just that whatever. And it's, if you're, and I'm not a, a very practiced meditator, but I've done it a bit. Like I said, that that realigning to like getting back into the mindfulness part of it when you realize you've stopped being mindful and are being distracted, mm-hmm. that's a gentle thing. It's not a um, if you, if you if you pull the brakes and you know uh, are harsh on yourself or whatever, you're not doing it right. It's right. it's a very just gentle correction. I think it's it's more like just that 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 light little push. Mm-hmm. Um, so I w- what I found fun about that was that I it it was just that kind of weird like oh I do want to do this. Um, whereas like when I talk myself into going to the gym or to doing whatever it is that I don't want to do laundry, it's more like I finally just like, all right, fine brain. I'll do it. Shut up. It's not more like I want actually to do it now. It's more like I want you to, I want me to shut up. Um, so I'm, I'm really eager to try this out and I'll, I'll report back. Um, can I read something from the comments? Yes. Like this was short enough of an article and I was into it enough that I was like, I want to read more. So I just kept reading the comments. Uh, in one of the comments, Mordina Mail says, Part of what led me to think of this was the recent Slate Star Codex on motivation. Quoting the post now, the stratum stratum receives bids from other brain regions, each of which represents a specific action. A little piece of the lamprey brain is whispering mate, while another piece is shouting flee the predator, and so on. It would be a very bad idea for these movements to occur simultaneously, because the lamprey can't do all of them at the same time, so to prevent simultaneous activation of many different movements, all these regions are held in check by powerful inhibitory connections from the basal ganglia. This means that the basal ganglia keep all behaviors in off mode by default. Only once a specific action's bid has been selected do the basal ganglia turn off this inhibitory control, allowing the behavior to occur. And Matt goes on to say, Think of the mind as an assembly of subminds who are bidding for control of the body. Sweep all the complexity aside for the moment and think purely of that bidding process. It seems evident that subminds can win the bidding war by being weak yet insistent. You can get your mind to pay close attention to your breath by repeating tiny intentions at a high frequency. You can make yourself do push-ups by the same means. You're effectively hacking the bidding process by taking advantage of an exploit. I was like, that makes perfect sense, and it's really cool. And it also, you know, reminds me of a certain rational fiction... <laughs> Actually, podcast thing that i'm doing right now it's... before he even talked about the subminds thing that's exactly what occurred to me and yeah i would bet a hundred bucks that uh max max harms has uh read the uh or at least is familiar with the same neuroscience yeah, yeah. if he's not then he's a fucking he's oh he's, he's already a fucking be. genius but that, right. that was way too close yeah what he's describing here is basically the 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 crystal society yeah. uh the, the which itself is based i think max said off the uh the well partly based among other things uh society of the mind which was a book about neural, how the brain works, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago now? That's right. We talked about that when you had him on the show. Yeah. Um, yeah, but anyway, so it, it was, it's fun to think about. And this, is, I guess it's knowledge I had in the back of my brain somewhere because I knew this, you know, that there are different parts of your brain competing for stuff and this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And yet I never applied that to this kind of intentionality before. And yeah, you're right. Parks just win. In fact, um, this is, this is easily demonstrable, right? Like you could say, I'm going to fast for as long as possible. Eventually you're going to stop. Right. Um, in fact, I just had a friend, one of my coworkers yesterday, um, was fasting for Yom Kippur, which apparently you do from the night before to the morning after. Oh, so like a 36 hour fast. Yeah. So I'd asked him, was it like midnight to midnight? Was it dawn to dusk? And he's like, no, it was from last night. And I accidentally had, I accidentally had a midnight snack, but um, he said the hardest part was like caffeine because oh. he drinks three or four cups of coffee a day. So. Oh, you can't even have liquids? Um, he said that you're not supposed to, but in his defense, they were at sea level. The, the, you know, the Jews in the desert where all this tradition came around. Right. And he's in Denver. So he's like, I can allow myself to have water. On the other but, hand, the desert's a pretty dry place. Yeah, I I, I was going to raise that point, but this was yesterday, <laughs> so maybe I'll bring it up tomorrow with him about, uh, you know, that I I think that's cheating because you're right, it's thirstier in the desert. Mm. But, um, yeah, apparently, you know, caffeine doesn't count. Aspen was like, does like aspirin count? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, you know, Excedrin has caffeine in it, but shit. Now that I've told you that, you probably would feel guilty, you know, cheating that way. Yeah. If I had said here, this will make your headache feel feel better. You might have taken it, but now it, I told you it has caffeine in it, and that would be uh anyway. Wait, um, even just caffeine, like just caffeine pills counts? I don't think it was in the Bible, so I think that when in doubt, <laughs> if you think you feel, if you, I think, right. I'm guessing. Stay as far away from potential sins as possible. I guess, yeah. If, if you can conceivably feel guilty about it, then you can't. I think that's the, the thrust of religious uh, It's a good discipline. thing I don't feel guilty about anything. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, anyway, this, this post is awesome, and it's you know meta point about the post which i already said but i'll reiterate because it's late and i'm getting repetitive is that um this was just a good application of the kinds of things rationalists can do they can read about one cool thing and transfer that seemingly fun nugget of trivia or maybe something that helps with one small domain to be like wait this kind of thing looks like it would work really well over here Mm -hmm. and that's i think just generally something that smart things and people can do but rationalists are good at finding those things maybe or something Trying to sell us is awesome. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Alrighty. I think we've been going on for a while. Are we about ready to wrap things up? Let's uh, indulge Steven for five plus minutes. All right. We'll start with the nice one. All right. Let's touch Steven's pot. <laughs> let's find a different way to put that. Um, <laughs> okay. I think we can have a section. Maybe it'll be just me because I'm the only one who cares about throwing random stuff in. But mm-hmm. we can have a grab bag, random quick thing section on our notes here. Grab Steven's bag. <laughs> Well, that sounds less bad. All right. So um, I played, I'm not sure if the hour count or if, when I, if I got it before we did our last episode, but something, I'll, I've still got the receipt. I'll find out. Something like 70 hours this month or in the last five weeks, I played the hell out of Horizon Zero Dawn, Okay. which was a game that came out in 2017 and would have easily won game of the year if it had come out three days before Breath of the Wild. Oh. Um, but it was amazing. Okay. Um, so I don't know how much i can talk about what made it amazing and might make it appeal to people who are interested in sci-fi and rationality um without spoiling some of the plot but if you play video games and you like um it's similar to like um kind of like shadow of 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 mordor or uh batman arkham asylum Uh, but basically if you want to know why a world that you're fighting t-rex robots and with a bow and arrow if you want to know why that world makes perfect awesome sense play this game Okay. And it has, uh, this was something that I noticed because Rachel watched me play it quite a bit too, um, that I was happy to notice and share. It was like, this has a like very positive representation of basically everything. There's, you know, this is, this is a society that doesn't care about like skin color, though it does care about tribes because it's, you know, they're, they're shooting bows and arrows. It's all about tribalism. Gotcha. But it's not a skin color based tribalism. Um, the protagonist is the most badass woman ever. And the 
see this is where I don't know if it's spoilery or not to talk about. Yeah, no, it's it's spoilery to get into. Okay. Um anyway, it was dope. And I didn't know until I was watching the credits at the end. The main character is voiced by Ashley Birch. Who's that? Um she came she was my first favorite female representation in a video game or female character in a video game. Okay. Fem- female voice acted character, uh-huh, whatever. Uh-huh. She played Tiny Tina in Borderlands. Okay. Oh my god! I vaguely remember playing Borderlands. I don't know who Tiny Tina is. She's the world's most dangerous thirteen-year-old. Oh, she's okay. she's insane. She talks like everyone in that game is fucking crazy. I love it so much. Yeah. There was that mission of like you know shoot his name was like Shooty McShooty Face, <laughs> and the quest was shoot him in the face, and he's like shoot him right. He's like shoot me right here, shoot me in the face, yeah. and the quest was like shoot shoot Shooty McShooty Face <laughs> in his face. <laughs> do, do you shoot him in his face yeah and then then he dies and you get you beat the quest it's just like the dumbest little thing ever cool. these games are brilliant so nice. um she did tiny tina and she did um hey ash what you playing which is like a short-lived uh, uh youtube video series where they would you know showcase a game for like five minutes and they were just these random little videos that she and her brother yeah. did I, um, I remember uh a friend showed me an episode of that that they really liked and i was like oh, yeah this yeah. is cool yeah they're funny um and she did i think did a couple other web things that didn't really take off but um yeah, she also voiced, um, I didn't play these games, but I watched someone play them because I have too much time on my hands, called uh, Life is Strange. Oh, she, yeah. She did not the main character, but the main character's friend the whole time. Okay, cool. Um, I played through the first chapter of that. It was it was really interesting. Yeah. I never got around to playing more of it. I have a really hard time with Telltale games. Yeah. It's not really gaming, it's storytelling, and yeah. that's fun, but that's what makes watching someone else do it on YouTube just as much fun for right. me. Right um because so, it is basically yeah like watching a movie i guess and it some might argue it's a choose your own adventure so doing right. it yourself is the same but it's really not i did the game of thrones one and like no matter what you do your your character gets killed in the end of the first arc or whatever like okay. so whatever spoiler alert it's game of thrones everyone <laughs> dies right. um but anyway really fun cool. and she did a great job and i didn't know that she had that kind of range like i've never seen her do like really like good emotional acting so yeah fantastic game everyone should check it out cool i did that i did a lot of that yeah if as long as we're recommending games, next week I'm going to recommend one. I don't want to like step on yours, but yeah, go for it. No, 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 I got one for next week. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'll bet I can drag it out of you because you'll probably forget by next week. I you wrote know. it down. All right, fine, we'll save yeah. it. Yeah. All right, cool. Only one rec- game recommendation per week. All right, we can, we can touch another thing, which was funny. Uh, well, it's up to you. Yeah, go for it. Actually, it's too long to get into. We'll save it. It okay. was the intellectual dark web uh, phenomena, which uh-huh. I hate. I think started off as a joke. And now it's like this idiot brand. It's like if someone else called atheists brights and they're like the atheists, like, I guess we'll just roll with it. Yeah. No, no. It was maybe kind of like the new atheists. Okay. Except more obnoxious. No, except, except actually obnoxious. The new atheists were great. I, I don't know. In, intellectual dark web has that kind of like, I'm Batman thing, you know, where it's yeah. like all dark. and Except, except all that it is, is people who are willing to say like, there might be a correlation between genetics and IQ. Right. Or, or between race and IQ. Right, right, And right. it's like, oh my god, you can join the intellectual dark web. Yeah. And the reason I thought of it was it was really funny in that same episode of Very Bad Wizards, um, Am I Wrong? In, in, the, in the description, it starts off, and they, they, they joke about the intellectual dark web phenomena a bit too, and so I could just read this in, I don't know their names from their voices, but the one who isn't Tamler, I guess, um, his i can just hear his voice saying this of like tamler wades into a twitter controversy about serena williams could this be his fast track pass to the intellectual dark web (laughs) (laughs) nice but it's like oh yeah oh man you're so in it now Mm. um i just thought that was a a funny joke and their their first half of episode 148 that we talked about today is on that phenomena so yeah um they talk about louis ck doing more stand-up and um 
other stuff. It was a good episode. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's, okay. that's I think what I got. Oh, that was all for your bag today. Well, I th- I thought we could dive into why I think it's a stupid thing and like why you think what the intellectual dark web is a stupid thing. I don't like. All right, so I'll so watch, I like the name. I think I'll the name brief. is just kind of cool sounding. That's true. It sounds dope. Yeah. But if it if it wasn't like. You know, brooding pictures of Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro <laughs> and all these shitbags who are only... I mean, excuse I, me, not I will bags. say the pictures also got me because I like the darker aesthetic, you know? I mean, I guess as a goth, that's sort of my thing. But I was like, these pictures are cool. The name's cool. I like it too. Man, what a cool branding they got. When I was when I was a wee lad, I used to, my Facebook picture was black and white kind of like this. But mm-hmm. um, I think... I, I, I guess I can't tell if they're leaning into it as a joke or if they're embracing it as like an actual thing. I mean, and at so, this point, it looks like it's an actual thing. And yet, Dave and Tamler were leaning into it as a joke. Yes, they were. And so that I enjoyed. Yeah. Leaning into it as an actual thing. I'm like, yep, we're the brave ones who are willing to ask these questions. It's like, no, right. you guys are just jerking each other off. And you're making really bad friends. Yeah. Um, so that's that's my bird's eye view of it. Okay. All right. That's all I got for this week. Okay. For this episode. We keep saying week like we do it weekly. Sorry right. it's every two weeks. We're, it's, we're not busy. We're lazy. And busy. And, Enoch yeah. is busy. Aw. I'm lazy. <laughs> I, do, I don't do that many things. But yeah. we'll eventually maybe do this twice or every week. Uh, take that out. No. Nope. I'm not committing to that. Yeah. I mean, you can if you want. I still will not be able to join you every week, though. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Why? Have you been thinking about doing it every week? Well, we keep saying it. There, there, there is... There is rationality from uh at least that's at least 50% Inyash every mm. week on on Beijing conspiracy weeks you get this and on the off weeks you get crystal society or whatever oh, whatever the what rationality saying. podcast is okay so right yeah you do a no. week, you do two bi-weekly podcasts which come out on alternate weeks yes so, yeah. i guess so for me it does feel more like a weekly thing so maybe i'll do another podcast that comes out on the other yeah. on the other week cool. you know What's your other podcast going to be about? Uh, but you see what I was saying the other week between the two, you know, you can't do alternate weeks and then have another week somewhere in the middle. Oh, 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 oh. I was being, I thought it was funny. We'll time turn our way into this. Yeah. We'll figure something out. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I was just kidding. I know. But we're, we're clearly. What would you do if you had another podcast? I wonder if I could talk Scott or Matt into doing one on video games. That'd be fun because they do doof media for, you know, TV, movies, and books. Yeah. But video games are more of an investment. Yeah. Like, like I said, to really play this game. I probably didn't need to spend all 70 hours, maybe 79, but probably at least 45 of those. And that would have to be like a monthly podcast. Yeah. And even that's a pretty heavy investment, 10 hours a week. Not everyone has that kind of free time or the desire to do that. So Right. I mean, but a lot of people do. The thing is, it's not work if you're playing the games anyway, right? That's true. But at some point, I'd run out of games I want to play. Yeah. And I have to play games that people are like, hey, you should try this. I'm like, oh, I got to drag my ass through Undertale now. <laughs> You didn't like Undertale? I tried for like 10 minutes. Oh my god. Maybe I'll try again. It, I also I, it, tried... See, the thing is, I grew up on Final Fantasy. I actually played the original Final Fantasy all the way through, but also 2 and 3, and I played a lot of the old JRPGs, so... Undertale wasn't Final Fantasy-esque. It was a text-based game, wasn't it? No, no, no. Undertale was total JRPG. But you're just talking to the things, and like you can you can fight or you can talk your way out of these altercations. Am I thinking yeah. the one where it's like the little no, no, white no. creatures? You're, you're on black... t- yeah, no, yeah. You're, that's Undertale. That was totally. I mean, I, I know you haven't played like the original Final Fantasy games, but that was I played Final you know, Fantasy VII back in the day. 
Well, okay, that's similar. Final Fantasy VII is basically... It looked good. Yeah, right. Sounded good. Okay, so... (laughs) It it, had all the things this game doesn't have. (laughs) But the battle system was, you're on one side, the enemies are the other, and you choose from a menu about what to do, right? Sure. And then after a little time period, you choose from a menu for another character. After a time period, you choose from another another character. And it's not like doing things actively with the controller. You're choosing from a menu every time a timer comes up. Okay, fair enough. And seeing the results. Yeah, okay. And now someone's listening and be like, Stephen, you should never do a video game podcast. You're an idiot. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed Undertale because it it was a it was a meta video game. It was a video game about the whole conceit of JRPGs. Okay, so I'll give it another shot. Like I think it's like I tried to watch Twin Peaks mm-hmm. going into it and like oh someone you know Rachel's really into that show. I tried like two episodes and I'm like this makes no fucking sense. Everyone's crazy, right? And then I was talking to somebody like two years later about the philosophy of uh, David Lynch's production style, mm-hmm. and it's like no dude, he just does weird shit like it's a it's like a dream you know things are just happening after and he talked about one of his movies where it's like a lot like that you know in one scene he's like in, having a fight at the kit you know at the kitchen table next scene he's off doing something else i'm probably butchering this point is it's just like sequence of events that aren't a story like you're used to okay. i'm like oh okay i was going into it looking for like the kind of thing i'm used to mm-hmm. to put on a different hat and go into it with different expectations i could probably enjoy it yeah so i'll try undertale again i was going into it looking for quote a good game unquote okay um I'm going into it looking for a different kind of experience. Maybe I can get nothing, something else out of it. Yeah. Um, what's the classic text-based video game? Um, Zorg? Yes. Okay. I found that fun. Oh, okay. Um, but, cool. But, you know, that's because I knew what I was getting into. Okay. Um, anyway, I think if this is still going on the episode, this has clearly gone too far. <laughs> if anyone's yeah. still left, thank you so much for listening. Oh, and thank you specifically to K-Brem, who um, is one of our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate you guys showing that you like the show and you love us, and it keeps us going. It really does. Thanks a lot. Thanks, yeah, Kbram. That that support means, I don't know. It does Inesh, mean a lot. Inesh just said it, but I don't know how to, I don't know how else to put it. Hmm. You know, it's nice that it helps keep the fun, show funded and keeps uh, keeps lights on, keeps the equipment functional, but it also just like means a lot that. All right, we're gonna go on for another minute. Uh, the episode that um, Sam Harris did with uh, it was. Episode one thirty six, digital humanism with uh, Jaron Lanier, mm. um, and they talked about how uh, the kind of idea of consuming content for free—you know, everything on the internet should be free, all all the information should be free. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of ins and outs in that, that I don't really get, but they talked about how, it, like, one thing it did give was um, pay for content that people actually want to subscribe to, like HBO or Netflix or something. And Harris made this argument on his podcast, and I skipped through the the whatever his pitch for donations because i've been giving like i downed it to a dollar a month because the show got less fun this year but um just enough to stay in the donation circle and get the stuff yeah Um, that's still something yeah a dollar a month adds up even if you know if you have enough listeners totally but i I meant for like the kind of um let me rephrase that because people give us a dollar a month and it's very nice yeah um so i don't know if you want to chop that or if i can just salvage this um feel like you would be giving more if you liked it more or? i used to give a dollar an episode okay um which you know wasn't much but that's what i give to skeptoid because in fact skeptoid's episodes have been getting better and better oh nice um can even you s- choose to do whether it's a month or per month or per episode on patreon you can do whatever you want or not whatever you want it is per month or per episode or no what you can do is you can do per episode with a limit of x ah uh, okay, okay and so i'll give them a dollar per episode up to a, a max of one, of, one of one per month yeah gotcha so Cool. Um, but what I really like about that is that I only give to a few contract content creators, and I should give to, to more. I should give to Wild Bow, who writes Worm and Ward. Mm-hmm. I should give to um, I should yeah. give more to Doof Media, and we've got Ward, the podcast that I like. 
but you know, I think I give like a dollar a month to Bending with Babish because he's that that chef on YouTube that I really like his stuff. Right, right. But the idea that you're funding things that you care about, and I like this model a lot more than you know just buying a, a cable plan and you watch commercials and that's how they get their money for making this worth it. We do it because we love it, but the fact that you care about it enough to like help keep it going means a lot. Man, I make really long points. I'm not feeling eloquent. So <laughs> I, I like I thought it was a good point. Okay, well thank you. And I think I should probably go and yeah, support a few more things on Patreon than I am right now because there's a lot of things that I really enjoy. And I would be sad if they went away. Well and the hard part too is, you know, all right, as long as we're on the subject, like people don't really at least I don't I don't buy books that often anymore. Right. Which is a drag because I still um, make it a point to buy every book that I read. And you would. Not, not, <laughs> right. no, 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 not that's a bad thing. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. because you're an author. Right. And, and, and you well, know I what mean, it means. But I've been doing that since since I started having a job and having my own money. Oh, let me rephrase that. I'm not stealing books. No, no, no. I know. Um, I know. I'm just I'm just reading less. Oh, okay. Well, and okay. May, maybe because it's it's an investment, but also... Like, well, I mean, I, a lot of people in my book club, we meet twice a month. A, a number of them just go to the library. And, oh, I, I see. mean, I don't I don't fault them for that. They they pay their taxes, and um, a couple of them are retired now, and so they're on a fixed income thing. And I'm like, I, one of them is like poor student, so I totally understand. I, I don't begrudge them that, but I'm in the position where I have a regular, you know, middle class job. I can I can buy two books a month. Didn't even, you read even, like Frankenstein like two years ago? Uh. About a year ago now, I think. So the author's not getting any any respect for that book. No, that's true. Uh, I I guess I probably could have and should have pirated Frankenstein because it's been over 100 years Or borrowed it or something. Right, right. Or, or, yeah, it's probably public domain at this point, too. But in any case, I like what you're saying. And and what I'm getting at is that when you decide to, like, give money to it, that's that's a real, like you said, unit of caring. Mm. Um, Yeah, like every every single book that I've reviewed on my website, I have, you know, bought... Even the ones that I didn't like, so and honestly, a review on public is you know another way, hey, of of showing that you care. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. so like, um, t- works for the show too. But it's that was what the hey was about was a uh, tying this in. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, talking about it, sharing it with your friends, um, you know, me pitching. I'm not getting any money for pitching Apollo over and over, or pitching <laughs> oh uh, or Horizon Zero Dawn. I wasn't involved in making that game. I just loved it. I thought it told a great story, and yeah. it was really well done. So. Um, talking about stuff you like too. All right. Yeah. Jesus Christ. We've I've gone been... on for a while. Yeah. I, I almost feel like this is one of those seven-minute Sam Harris why why you should give money. Yeah. All right. So we we are done now. What we're saying is thanks, guys. You're the best. We appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good night. See you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye.